0: Well, at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, in, in chapter 28, as Jesus ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end. Of the age. The making of disciples is the mission and the purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ. That's what every church is to be about the, the business of making disciples, seeing nonbelievers come to believe, see those who have not converted to conversion, to see those who have not heard the gospel, hear the gospel, and believe the gospel. But discipleship is actually a two sided coin. So, on the one hand, there's absolutely this desire, this necessity to see new believers. There is also the other side of the coin, in which discipleship is about those who've professed faith in Jesus become immersed more and more into the life of God, as St. Paul says, to be transformed into the very image of the Son. In fact, In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, St. Paul expresses the purpose of salvation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so discipleship only begins with conversion. It only begins with baptism. It only then begins where we are now being conformed into the image of the Son. And so any church that wants to have be biblical in its mission and purpose, must be about both sides of the coin. We must see new conversions, and then we must see people growing in their faith, growing in the image of Christ. That's discipleship. We grow as disciples of God as he forms us into the image of Christ through his appointed means of grace and one of God's appointed means of grace for discipleship growth for transformation for formation and reformation is corporate worship as I begin this morning I'd like to tell you two stories and I know that some of you most of you have already heard these stories before and I need to ask you to forgive me for that quite frankly I only have so many stories to tell <clears throat> But I want us to hold on to this idea that in worship itself, we are being discipled because we are being formed through the liturgy. In the fall of 1995, I began my university studies at Oklahoma State University. And I went to OSU for two reasons. First, I was genetically predisposed to go to OSU because my dad had gone there. And second, I went to Oklahoma State because it wasn't in Kansas. (laughs) Kansas is a nice place to leave. Did I hear an amen out there? (laughs) But by the time I had crammed my four years of education into five, my basic level of attraction to Oklahoma State had been formed into a fondness, I love even, for the institution. I enjoyed the challenge of the classroom. I enjoyed it so much, I added classes and changed majors. I enjoyed the newness of being on my own, of forging my own way. But I will admit to you that one of the greatest formers of my love for my alma mater was football. I know, this is horrible. Our teams were terrible. In my time, from 1995 till I graduated in 2000, there was only one winning season. And that was followed by a loss, not in the Sugar Bowl, not in the National Championship, but a loss in the Alamo Bowl. Before every home game, there would be, of course, the the National Anthem, and there would of course be all the the pageantry, but just before kickoff, the OSU marching band would come out onto the field, and they would perform what is called the Trilogy, the Waving Song, Ride'em Cowboys, and the OSU Chant. And then the band would part like the Red Sea before Moses. And the announcer would shout, here comes bullet. And bursting out of the tunnel uh, would come a black horse with a rider carrying an OSU flag. The horse would sprint to about midfield and then head back to the end zone while the crowd cheered. And every time OSU scored, which admittedly wasn't that often in the mid-90s, the waving song was played. And everybody in the stand, all 50,000 of us, would wave our arms, bullet would burst out to the 30-yard line, and we'd all fall in love with OSU just a little bit more. Now, before any of you get too high and holy about that ridiculousness, I just remind you that FSU has a guy who rides a horse with a flaming spear. (laughs) That's right. and, And the gators have some kind of weird, you know, they're all having the same gator chomp. It's like you're all having the same muscle spasm right and i guarantee you if alabama could figure out why an elephant has anything to do with the state of alabama they would have an elephant at the games still trying to figure out why the auburn tigers have an eagle they're confused about it too that's a good that's my first story my second story in the fall of 2012 uh, in a different church and in a different part of the country, I met a woman named Betty. When I met Betty, she was in her late 80s, and her body was riddled with cancer. The cancer had begun in her breast. It had found its way into her bones and settled in her brain. I was Betty's priest, but she most likely never really knew who I was. In fact, I only knew Betty in the hospital. And whether it was because of the cancer or the drugs which controlled her pain or a combination of the two, I found it very difficult to have a conversation with Betty because I couldn't understand what she was saying. I understood the words that came out of her mouth, but her speech was full of what appeared to me to be non-sequiturs, random statements intended for another person in another time. There was one thing, however, there was one thing that Betty repeated, and it has stuck with me ever since. A number of times Betty looked at me and with clarity in her eyes she said, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And if you don't recognize that phrase, that's it's okay. But it's part of one of our Eucharistic liturgies, and it's referred to as the mystery of faith. So Betty, as she lay dying, repeated words of liturgy. She repeated words of worship. Now these two stories. One, ridiculous, but commonplace. The other, just as commonplace and far more profound. These stories are examples of the powerful reality that our love is shaped by liturgy. Our love is shaped by liturgical practices. And I would argue that is discipleship. 17 years after I graduated from Oklahoma State University, my heart is still Geared toward the Cowboys. I still wave my arms when the Cowboys scored. I've brainwashed my wife into doing the same. (laughs) I have brought our daughter up to join me in that. Declan already loves his Oklahoma State sweater. As our Cowboys won the Alamo Bowl this past December, we sat around our television celebrating by waving our arms. At Oklahoma State, specifically in the student section of football games, I experienced the power of liturgy. And as Betty succumbed slowly to cancer, she could with clarity profess the mystery of faith because those phrases had so formed her in her discipleship, they had become such a part of her life and faith that it was really just about the only thing she had left powerful reality that our love is shaped by liturgical practices. Discipleship through liturgy. Discipleship in worship. Liturgical worship is, foundational, is a foundational context of discipleship because through it, our hearts are addressed and our love is rightly aligned. And there is great power for Christian discipleship in the liturgy because God meets us. God aligns our love toward him in and through it. And through the liturgy disciples of Jesus are formed and reformed. At its core, we talk about discipleship. It is about love. Being a disciple of Jesus is about loving Rightly, loving rightly to proclaim him as Lord and Savior, loving rightly to follow after him in obedience, loving rightly, and as the Holy Spirit forms us more and more into his image, at its core, discipleship is about having a love rightly aligned and a heart truly aimed at God. In his work entitled In Caridian on Faith, Hope, and Love, St. Augustine of Hippo wrote this, We shall be truly free when God fashions us That is, forms and creates us anew as good men. When there is a question as to whether a man is good, one does not ask what he believes or what he hopes, but what he loves. God, according to St. Augustine, forms us as right lovers. That's discipleship. And it happens in worship. A disciple of Jesus is one whose love is being rightly aligned toward him. Professor James Smith, in his books, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, and You Are What You Love, lays out his basic argument in this way, humans are built to love, and our love is shaped by habit-forming practices, which he calls liturgies. Smith writes, our love is shaped, primed, and aimed by liturgical practices that take hold of our gut and aim our heart to certain ends. Does anybody in here follow the same routine every morning as they get up and get ready to go to work or about their day? It always kind of falls out to be the same way, right? You get up, you have your first cup of coffee, and depending on what your schedule looks like, you might have the coffee IV inserted in, Right? And you have that first cup of coffee, maybe you have some breakfast, eat the, you read the newspaper, and then you, you head upstairs to your, your restroom and you, you take your shower, you brush your teeth, you put in your contacts. It always falls out to do the exact same thing in the exact same way. Why? Well, because you love yourself, you're taking care of yourself, and there's a liturgy, a habitual practice that forms that love. The same thing occurs whether we're talking about Oklahoma State football, whether we're talking about college football in general, whether we're talking about the liturgies of the shopping mall, whether we're talking about election cycles, because that is a liturgy, whether we're talking about the uh, liturgies of the shopping mall, our love is being formed in the direction of the very thing we love, and what we find is that we are transformed into that thing that we love. All worship forms and transforms. We will worship something. That means we will be a disciple of something. That means we will be transformed by something into something. All worship forms and transforms because all worship directs and aligns love. In Psalm 135, the psalmist says those who make idols become like them. And so do all who trust in them. You are what you love You worship what you love. You are what you worship. That's the way James Smith puts it in his book, You Are What You Love. In the liturgy, our hearts are addressed. Our hearts are formed and reformed as our love is directed, redirected, aligned, and realigned. That is discipleship. As Christians in the Anglican tradition, we have a tremendous heritage in our liturgical forms of worship. In these historical forms of worship, there is great power for discipleship as God meets us and aligns our love toward him. Here at Emanuel, both of our services, our 745 and our 10 o'clock, while different, both use historic Anglican liturgies. One service is not more liturgical than another. One service is not more reverent than another. Both are liturgical services in which God is worshipped and through which we are formed and reformed as disciples. Liturgical worship is foundational; is a foundational context for discipleship because, really, we get out of the way, God gets in the way, and forms our hearts through the habitual practices. Through the liturgy, disciples of Jesus are formed and reformed. Now, if we can think together about some practical issues, why might this be important? Well, First, I think we have to be aware of the competing liturgies that are around us, right? We, we all are beings that love, and we are all beings that are being shaped by liturgies. We have to be aware of what we love and how that liturgy or that practice is, is shaping us, is forming us. Today's a wonderful example of a competing liturgy. I make no secret about it. I love football. College is better than pros, but today's the day of the Super Bowl, right? There is a liturgy, go Patriots, there is a liturgy <laughs> of. There's a liturgy surrounding this whole thing, right? There's a 20-week preseason, regular season, then you've got four weeks of playoffs. And then it, during this break between the end of the playoffs and the Super Bowl, you've got either one or two weeks, depending on the year, in which you have very specific events. You've got press conferences, picture day, you've got all these things that culminate in... The Super Bowl itself. Now, the kickoff isn't until 5.30, but I guarantee you the pregame show started about three hours ago. <laughs> all building towards, right? And what what is it funneling our love towards, right? We start off with this sort of benign desire to enjoy football, and all of a sudden our, our love is being funneled towards deeper and deeper into this thing. Does that make sense, or am I just... Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> And so we are beings that love, and we're beings whose love is shaped by liturgies. The election cycle, I made a passing reference to that, but think about it. The election cycle, every two years or more, is being compressed all the time. People start running for president now about 10 years before they're actually going to launch. But it's, they are forming, that, that liturgy is forming us into lovers of country who are, who are citizens who vote and who are responsible. And there's other things that it's forming us into the things that aren't so good. You think about the the liturgy of the shopping mall, that is a competing liturgy that will form our love. And so we have to be aware of the competing liturgies that will form our loves away from God. We must almost constantly be aware of what is shaping our love. What is a, a liturgy that we follow and thus forms and reforms us into disciples? We will worship something means we will be disciples of something means We'll be transformed into something. But we also must be thoughtful about the liturgies that we incorporate into the lives of our churches. Because of the seriousness of what it is that we are doing, encountering the creator of all that is, because of the only redeemer that is, indwelt by the only Holy Spirit that is, coming to worship him, we must be careful about the liturgies we use. So much of American Christian worship has come to a place where a liturgy is simply passive reception of entertainment. And that is habit-forming. That is a habit-forming practice. The question must be asked, what kind of love is that forming? If all we do when we come into worship is become passive consumers, what is that forming us into? Is our worship forming passive consumers or active participants? And finally, we must recognize and celebrate the simple fact that worshiping through liturgy frees us. It frees us. It is freeing. The reality of God's use of liturgy to form us into Augustinian good men and women, those who love rightly, frees us as priests, as deacons and worship leaders, frees us as pastors from being entertainers and showmen. We do not have to stand behind the table or this, the, this little music stand and like Maximus shout out, are you not entertained? Of course, we want to work hard at writing and delivering sermons. Of course, we want to lead the liturgy with clarity and excellence. But in the end, the liturgy frees us even as leaders to be worshipers who are being encountered by the holy living God and being transformed, discipled, formed, and reformed. The liturgy also frees us as worshipers. We're freed from a self-centered worship where it's all about me and what I get out of it. In and through the liturgy, the audience truly is one. I try to be a, an easy-going kind of guy. I try not to get upset about a lot of things. But if you really want to see me get my back up, tell me that liturgy is boring. Liturgy is anything but boring because of the one we encounter through it and what he does in it. God forms us. Liturgy frees us. The liturgy is geared toward getting us out of the way so that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can get in the way. And if we find it boring to be in the presence of God while here on this earth on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half, we are really going to hate eternity. Within the narrative arc of worship, we are gathered in God's presence where we get to sing his praises. We get to hear his word. We confess our sins. We hear the comfortable words of forgiveness. We receive the bread and the wine as a foretaste of the glory to come. The irony is that the more we make worship about ourselves, the more we're consumed about what I want in worship or what I get out of worship, the more I'm concerned about my preferences in worship, the less we make it about God, the less we actually receive from it because I'm telling you, the less God shows up. The more we try to spice it up to fit our consumerist desires, the more we make it about ourselves, the more we miss what God is doing. But the opposite is also true. The more we make worship about God, the more God is the center of all that we do, the more he encounters us in the liturgy, the more he forms, reforms, and transforms us in our love into the image of Christ. In worship and liturgy, God realigns our love. He renews us. He transforms us by his grace into his people who love rightly. In worship, those things which were cast down are being raised up. Those things which had grown old are being made new. In worship, hearts that are broken are remade. In worship, love that has gone askew and astray is aligned. In worship, love that has gone cold is raised to a fire. Through the liturgy, disciples of Jesus are formed and fashioned, reformed and refashioned into his very image that is discipleship. As Christians in the Anglican tradition, we have a tremendous heritage in our liturgical forms of worship. In these historical forms of worship, there's great power for discipleship as God meets us and aligns our love toward Him. Liturgical worship is a foundational context of discipleship because through it, our hearts are addressed, our love is rightly aligned. Through the liturgy, disciples of Jesus are formed, reformed, and transformed. And that is discipleship. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son